Good morning. How are y'all doing today? Uh, it's good to see you. We are glad that you are here. Grab your Bibles. We are still in the book of Acts, and we will be that, there for a few weeks, taking a break for our Easter series and our, our resurrection series, coming back after that and finishing up and then getting into our summer series. Uh, uh, it's hard to believe we're talking about summer, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's here. Spring is already upon us. It's a great time. So grab your Bibles, the book of Acts. We stop off in Luke chapter 11 for a moment, then Acts chapter 12 in, in a few minutes together. Um, today, simply prayer in prison, and it'll make sense in a moment as we get into Acts chapter uh, 12 in just a second. You know, in life, there are things that you just hope you never forget to do. You know, there are things that you say, oh, these are the things that I have to do. I make sure these things are covered for my life. And and so this morning before service, uh, I get this text from Duke Energy and says that, that um, there is no electricity at my house. You know, it's, I don't know if you've ever got one of those. And so I thought, well, you know, I don't know what's going on. It's fine. I'm not there. Coco, she'll survive. She's a dog. I know that shocks some of you to say that, but she is, and so she'll be okay. And so I told Reba just in passing, she's serving in Hope Kids this morning, and I went by and I said, hey, we don't have any electricity at our house right now. And um, she looked at me, and what do you think the first thing she asked me was? What do you think it was? Thank you. Did you pay the electric bill is exactly what she asked me. Yes, that's exactly as if I would not have. I do remember some years ago in North Carolina that on our way home from vacation, somebody called us on our cell phone and said, hey, we've been trying to call your house. And every time we call your house, it says that your phone is disconnected. And so we forgot to pay our phone bill. So it, it, it does happen, you know. It does happen. But no, it was paid. Electricity is out for some other reason. It's not that. And so I'm glad that you guys understand. You would probably ask your spouse, whoever pays the bills in your house, the exact same thing. In the book of Acts, the church in the book of Acts, well, they were committed to four things. They said, these are the things that we know to do. We're not going to neglect these things. We're not going to skip these things. But when we come together, there are four spiritual disciplines about the book of Acts, the church of the book of Acts, that we find them simply celebrating every time they come together. One is that of the teaching of the apostles' teachings, and that was the teachings of the New Testament was the first discipline. The second was that of, of fellowship. It was fellowship. And, and the third, it was communion. And communion is more than just the Lord's table as in contextual context. But yet, that our cultural context, but yet it was that of uh, a deep relationship with one another, breaking bread together. And then the fourth was that of prayer. Not only were they relational with one another, but they were extremely relational with God. And so we seem to have, if I take those four disciplines and kind of lay them over us, that we seem to have the teaching part down, because that's what we're doing right now. We're teaching the scriptures uh, this morning together and studying them together. We have the fellowship part pretty down pretty much, I think, that we're experts, you know. I'm in the lobby this morning before service starts. I see that you guys are expert fellowshippers. I mean, you really are, that you enjoy being with one another. You enjoy sharing time with each other, having relationships with one another. And the, so that is great. The communion part, oh, we get that down. Not too long ago, we shared the Lord's table. We have deep relationships with one another. We're breaking bread together from time to time. So we have that part down. But when it comes to that fourth spiritual discipline, that of prayer, oh, there's a big question mark about that one in our lives many times. It is the one that we probably struggle with the most as of all spiritual disciplines. The prayer discipline is the one that we probably as believers struggle with the most. But before we answer that question about where we are in our prayer life, can I give you a little catch up at this morning as to far as where we are 
with the church in the book of Acts. Last week, we had this glimpse of the book of Acts as the gospel spreads outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. Stephen has been executed. He's been stoned because of his persecution that the Christians are fleeing Jerusalem. And as they do, they're spreading the gospel into places like Samaria. We find the story of Philip as he is preaching and many come to Christ there. And the greater the persecution, the more the church begins to pray, the more the gospel begins to spread outside Jerusalem. It is a fulfillment of the promise of Christ. It is. Last week, we experienced the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. He is this religious zealot who is absolutely bent on that of wiping Christianity from the face of the earth to protect the purity of Judaism. And Saul is present, we know, at the stoning of Stephen, and he condones that. Saul is on his way to Damascus. He's been kicking in doors and dragging Christians to jail. He's on his way to Damascus to do the same. And all of a sudden, he's arrested by this bright light knocked from his horse. He has this experience where he sees the risen Christ. He hears the words of Jesus, and he is converted there on the road to Damascus. And we find that later on through a series of events that we find him preaching Jesus in the synagogue. So we see this amazing conversion of Saul of Tarshish. We saw signs and wonders. We talked about them last week that makes Jesus further known and spreads the gospel outside Jerusalem. We find places like um, Lydda where we find Aeneas who is bedridden for eight years. In, with, uh, he's paralyzed. Peter shows up. He prays over him. He heals. The, the Lord heals him. Then we find that there is Joppa. There's a woman by the name of Tabitha. She becomes ill. The scriptures tell us she dies. They send for Peter, and Peter simply leaves, and he comes to where she is in Joppa. He prays over her, and all of a sudden he presents her, the scripture says, alive to all the mourners. And, and so we know that there are signs and wonders that are making Christ known. And then we realize that Peter has a vision that he is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so there is this vision of the sheet, the sheet that comes down from heaven, and it talks about angels, and it talks about dietary restrictions because he would understand it as a Jew. And he, Jesus simply said to him through this vision that whatever I have made is, is clean, so call nothing unclean. And then in another town called Caesarea, there is this centurion by the, by the name of Cornelius, and he has a vision about Peter. Isn't it amazing how God works those things, isn't it? That God is absolutely in the details of our lives. And so he says to Cornelius, you get somebody, send him over to Joppa. You're going to bring Peter to Caesarea, uh, and Caesarea, and there he's going to preach the gospel to you. So they do that. Peter comes. He brings some Jewish brothers with them, and they're surprised at what he's doing. He shows up in a house full of Gentiles. He preaches the gospel, they become saved, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the gospel begins to spread in all of Caesarea. So very the first time that we find that the gospel not only crosses that of geographical lines, but the gospel is now crossing that of ethnic lines. It's a powerful story. And what we know from our discovery thus far, that all of this is a fulfillment of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, which simply says, for you will see power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and we be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You and I, we're proof of the promise. We're a living proof of the promise of that of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. That is us. Because if you understand in a more geographical context of that, when that prophecy, when that text was given them, that promise that we are truly the ends of the earth. So we are simply a fulfillment of that promise. It's an amazing thing. And so then you find in chapter 2, you find that 
of 120 in the upper room there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They're waiting for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And what are they doing while they're waiting? They're teaching the things that Jesus had said to them. They're in fellowship, they're in communion, and they're in prayer. I want to talk about prayer for a moment. Because when you look at Acts chapter 12 in a few moments, you're going to see the power of truly of prayer and when believers come together and they begin to pray. So I have a couple of quotes for you. They're in, the, in, in your notes this morning, but I want to read them to you. They're from this man, uh, this pastor by the name of Samuel Chadwick. He was a Wesleyan uh, Methodist minister in the United Kingdom, and he wrote a book called The Path of Prayer. You say, but I've never seen a blog by this guy by the name of Samuel Chadwick. Well, it's probably because he died in 1932, you know, so it's probably not his thing. But yet, can I read this quote? Because I think it's powerful. It says, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. He trembles when we pray. Those are powerful words. Here's a second quote. This is my favorite. The prayer that prevails is not the work of lips or fingertips, or and fingertips, it said. Yes, it is the cry of a broken heart and the travail of a stricken soul. That what, when you go through not only the book of Acts, but when you leave the book of Acts and you go all the way through to this time in church history, what we find is this, that every major season of awakening in, in Christianity, every major season of awakening in Christianity is simply blanketed with prayer. It is part, prayer has a powerful role in every spiritual awakening in Christianity. If it's, if it's a spiritual awakening in the church, then there is prayer. If it's simply in a classroom or on a college campus, it always involves prayer. If it's where you work or in your home or wherever it is or at the coffee shop, it's always characterized by this intense, persistent prayer. There's never been a moment where there was a spiritual awakening in the history of the church and Christianity where it was not marked by that of intense, persistent prayer. It's important. It is powerfully important that you and I understand the power of prayer. And so as we have defined the church over the past few weeks, what we've said about the church is this. The church is made up of individuals that function collectively. That's the church. It's made up of individuals that function collectively. So in light of us being individuals functioning collectively, I have a question. What's your personal prayer life like? That's a huge question, isn't it? What is your personal prayer life like? What is it? What are those moments like when you are blocking off some time? You say, Mark, you don't understand. I have very little time. But what I realize is that we can block off some time in our day in those moments. And we block off a time for that of reading scripture and praying and meditation. So what are those moments like within your life? And you say, but Mark, that is an extremely personal question that you should never ask because my prayer life and my my faith life is personal. But yet we have debunked that myth through the book of Acts because what we realize is this, that we live out our faith in community. We do. But of all spiritual disciplines, we struggle with that of prayer. Yes, we got the teaching thing down. Yeah, we do. Man, we are experts at the fellowship thing. Just like, let me know when you want a fellowship and I'm there to fellowship. 
That, I'm an expert at that. Absolutely. The communion thing, that's good. But when it comes to the prayer thing is where all of us, even myself at times, really struggle. Why? Because I think we have this human view of prayer at times. And we know that the human view is this three-inch view of life that we see about this far in our life. And beyond that, well, everything is like open. It's out of our control somewhat. And so we look at prayer as somewhat being inconsistent. What do you mean by that? I mean, here's what I mean. That we pray and sometimes we get nothing, right? All right, let's, let's level the ground this morning and let's make sure that we're all on the same page. How many, have ever, how, how many have had that experience in your life where you have prayed? Now, be honest, this is church, okay? Remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, okay? Remember them, yes? Do I need to bring that up? How many have ever prayed and, and you felt like just nothing happened? Raise your hand. Let me see. Wonderful. That's great. Put your hands down. So we are on the same page. There are times because we see prayer as being inconsistent. Why? Because there are times we pray that nothing has happened. And we have to be honest and talk about that in a little while. And we pray, sometimes we pray and things do happen, but they're different than what we ask for, right? Exactly. Yes. Maybe you have been praying for a wife you know, you're a single guy, you're praying for a wife, and then God directs you to go to the animal shelter and get a dog, you know, kind of deal. I don't know. But yeah, I prayed for a wife and I get a puppy, you know, kind of deal. I don't know. I'm not going to make any comments beyond that, but, but understand that. Yes, so sometimes we pray and things work out different than what we prayed about. And then there are times we pray and boom, it's like the mic, mic drop experience and boom, it's right there. And God does exactly what we prayed about. And so we begin to wonder, does prayer really work? And, and I know that probably there are times and struggles of our life that we've all been there. Does prayer really work? Or is God just gonna, simply going to do whatever he wants to do up there in heaven? And our prayer is just kind of a waste of time in, in this life. Does prayer really work? Acts, the book of Acts talks a lot about prayer. It does. It talks a great deal about prayer. But before we get to the book of Acts, I want us to go to the book of Luke chapter 11 because there's an amazing story, a narrative there that's going to help us to set up what we're going to talk about from Acts chapter 12. Now, originally we know that Acts and Luke were one book at one time written by the same author, Luke. We understand that. The powerful thing about the book of Luke is this. The Luke, in the book of Luke, what we, find, we find the words and the works of Christ. And in the book of Acts, what we find is this. We find the words and the works of Christ being lived out by the disciples and the church. It's what we do. So I thought about this. If the book of Luke is simply like a glove, if the book of Luke is like a glove and that is that it is the, the structure of the church, it is the words of Christ, the teachings of Jesus, and, and so it gives us some structure then what the book of Acts would be, if this is the book of Luke, then what the book of Acts would be, the book of Acts would be the hand inside the glove. Meaning that it simply is the application of what we find in the book of Luke. It's powerful. See, it's inseparable. You can't, you can't separate them. That's why the book of Acts is so important for you and I as the church in that it, it simply is the bridge to the rest of the New Testament. Because if you miss that, then what you're going to end up with, you're going to end up with the teachings and the words of Jesus, which are extremely powerful. They are. And it's great to have those things, but you're going to end up with some knowledge. But when you get to the book of Acts, what you're going to have is you're going to have a hand in the glove and you're going to have some application. And so that's what it's teaching us. 
And so when we look at this book of Luke, it has a lot to say about prayer also. It really does. It's this bridge, and, and it's, it leads us to the bridge of the book of Acts. So in the book of Luke, chapter 11, the disciples ask Jesus this interesting question. They say to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so here's what he, how he responds. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. It's interesting because the disciples are there, but it says Jesus is praying. They're observing him pray. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. That Why do they question him about prayer? Because they may be a very confused group of people sometimes, but they're very observant. And they have done, they have connected the dots. What they have done is this. They have connected the dots between that of the teachings of Christ and the miracles of Jesus and that of prayer. They have connected all of that. They could have said to him, Lord, teach us how to heal people, is what they could have said. Because is it how you touch them when you heal them? Or is it like the television evangelist. It's the inflection of your voice in way you heal people, you know? It's the way you say, be healed, like that, you know, kind of thing. Is that now, I've been around church a long time, so I, I've seen that a lot. So is that how you say it? Is, is, is that how it works? No, no. They have connected the miracles of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus to that of prayer. So they ask this question, Lord, teach us to pray. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Well, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father. It reminds us of an important thing that we have talked about a lot. And that is that not only is our God infinitely powerful, but our God is immensely, intensely personal within our lives. It does. And, and they understand this very well. Because they have grown up in this occupied Roman culture. And so in Rome, they would refer to Zeus as father. But Zeus was a very different father from our Heavenly Father. Because Zeus being this false god, he was always the father waiting up in heaven for you to simply mess up. And when you messed up, then you got a lightning bolt from Zeus is what you got. But all of a sudden, we have God the Father here... And in contrary to, to all the gods of historical context, that he's the only deity who loves and sought for the good of his own people. And so here's what God says. Okay, when you say Father, because he centers them with that, he said, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. You say, but Mark, wait a minute. You're talking about prayer from Luke, and we are in the book of Acts. Yes, because it ties together. Because if you move down very quickly to verse 13, it says, Then how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? It still simply takes us back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. It takes us back to Luke 24, where it says that you're to go in the city, the words of Christ, and you're to wait there till you're clothed with power from on high. So it's still all in this very same thought. So, here what, so after that, here's what Jesus does. He gives them a narrative, a very strange narrative, but he gives them a narrative. Verse 5, he says this, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. And, and I thought a lot about this narrative, you know. Here is the thing. It's midnight. Your friend is in bed. Think about this with your neighbors. I don't know your neighbors. I know mine, but I don't know yours. So kind of put yourself in this place. And they've been in bed for some time. 
They have. Back then, they would go to bed when the sun goes down. So if the sun has gone down at what, 7 o'clock maybe? Then they have been in bed already five hours. My math is correct. They've been in bed five hours, yes. You and I, well, we go to bed like, we we go to sleep during the news at 11 o'clock. Isn't that right? Yes. The older you get, the golden life is this, to stay up long enough to see the weather. Because for some reason, when you get older, the weather is super important. I don't know why. Because it gives you something to talk about, I guess. But yet, you know, you fall asleep sometime during the news, right? And then somebody wakes you up and you drag yourself to bed. And you make this promise that you're going to go to bed earlier the next night. You're not going to do that again. And you repeat it again. They've been in bed a long time. So all of a sudden, there is this excessive request at the most inopportune time that you could imagine. And I thought about this. Maybe it's the guy that borrows stuff from you all the time. You know that guy? Yes. I mean, think about it. They may be laying in bed thinking, ah, oh, geez, it's the guy next door. He borrowed our camel last week and he kept it for three weeks. I mean, you know, I, our three days. So, I mean, maybe, he, maybe it's that person. Yeah. And so he goes on to say, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 6, <clears throat> for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to, I have nothing to set before him. And I thought about this. Your friend arrives at midnight, <clears throat> and they're hungry, and you have nothing to feed them. First of all, your friend should have went through the drive-thru before they got to your house, right? Yeah, they shouldn't have shown up hungry, but they did. You have nothing to give them, and so you want to feed them. You're a great host. I understand that. And, and so this conversation is going on at midnight, and the person next door that wants the food... He's standing on the front porch of the person that's asleep, and he's shouting through a locked door. It's kind of a strange situation, verse 7. And he, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. And, and I thought about that, so I researched that one. And in that culture, the family slept together. They did. Uh, you know, and, and their kids were always in the bed with them. Some of you now, you didn't know it, but you're Jewish, right? You didn't know that, right? Because you always got kids in the bed with you all the time. Or you have that kid that becomes a demon at night, then they never want to go to sleep. I don't know if you ever had one of those or not. We had one of those. Yeah, ours was Bradley, and uh, <clears throat> it, was, it was crazy with him. I don't know if you ever had it where we, we had to sit by his bed and hold his hand. And when you thought he was asleep, that we, we went all ninja on him, you know, kind of deal, right? And we would drop to the floor, and we would crawl out of the room. And by the time you got to the door, all of a sudden you'd hear behind you, where are you going? <clears throat> your life was spent trying to put some little kid to bed, you know? And, and so maybe, maybe it's been a long night. He's laying in bed with his kids. And, and so he says, you know, I can't, I can't come. And, and, he, and he explains, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, that he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Understand what he's saying. Yet because of his impudence, or maybe your translation says persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. The word impudence kind of puzzled me a bit. So I begin to research what it means. And it simply means shameless persistence is what it means. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it's like begging is what it is, right? Yeah. 
We can't make a ham sandwich. You got to give me some bread. Come on, dude. You know, I'll do whatever I can for you. But you, but it's kind of gives us that picture. And so, if it's shameless persistence, then it causes my mind to go in a lot of places and connect these dots that maybe shouldn't be connected in this in this narrative. Yes, because this guy is giving him the bread eventually. Not because of friendship. That's, that's not it at all. But he's given it to him because of persistence. His impudence. And all of a sudden I begin to connect some dots. And I was like, oh, oh, now I got it. I understand. That God is this rude and grumpy neighbor who I have to beg. And then sometimes out of reluctance, God meets the request just to make me be quiet and get off his front porch. Is exactly what happens. And so it confirms exactly what I've always thought about God. That if I just pester him long enough, he's going to give in to me out of frustration. If I wear him down, <laughs> as if I could, right? Yeah. Then he's going to say, oh, I wish Mark would just stop asking. Dear Lord, he turned, you know, God turns to the son and the son says, shoot, I'm tired of him too. He turns to the Holy Spirit and says, please take care of this guy because he is driving us crazy up here. Just give him whatever he wants. Now, can I tell you, because you have to frame this teaching right, and it's going to set us up for Acts in a moment. And here is the thing that is this teaching about persistence. Yes, ask, seek, and knock. Absolutely. But it's, but it's more about action than it is about repetition. Now, I want you to hear this for a moment. Because this is not about begging and pleading. Don't characterize God by that, because if you do, then you don't understand His character and His nature as being our good Father. But this is about a persistent communication with the Father who is infinitely powerful, yet simultaneously, intensely personal within our lives. It's like if you ask your heavenly, or if you ask your earthly father for something, and it's something that you are absolutely passionate about in life, that you're just not going to ask him one time, but you're going to ask him a number of times because it's a reflection of the passion of your heart. His response to you will be a direct result of your relationship with him, not because he wants to stop you from asking. This is a narrative about contrast and not comparison is what it is. It's not comparing God to this grouchy and grumpy neighbor who doesn't want to get out of the bed until you bother him so much that you won't let him sleep. And then he's going to give you something. That is not it at all. Our father is intensely personal within our lives. He loves to give us good gifts. He loves to give us the things that are good for us. He loves to do the things within our life that bring us joy, that are the very best for our life. He is committed to us. You have to characterize God in the right way here. This is about contrast and not comparison. How do you know that? Because if you continue reading in verse 11, what it, verse 11, what does it say? That what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? It is. It's like, hey, Dad, we're hungry. We're going to, you know, we want to go to the Christian chicken, which is Chick-fil-A, you know. You feel closer to the Lord when you eat there kind of deal, right? Yes, 
You do. And, and so you get all, I'm just kidding. You get all the kids in the car and you head out to, to Chick-fil-A to get them some nuggets or whatever. But yet you, you as the dad, you'd kind of take a, a detour and all of a sudden you pull up at the zoo and they said, dad, you don't get Chick-fil-A nuggets here. And he said, yeah, I know, but I thought you might like to have a kid's meal with vipers in it, you know, is what you might like to have. It's exactly how much sense this would make. Or he says, if you ask for an egg, I will give you a scorpion. Or you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, it frames it well for us now, doesn't it? It's an understanding of his character and his nature. Yeah. It has nothing to do with begging God. It has nothing to do with seeing God as some rude neighbor who refuses to get out of bed until you make life so miserable for him. That he's going to give you three loaves of bread. That's not it at all. But it's about a passionate and an authentic conversation with your father who is committed, who is committed to you as his child. How when you view prayer like that, it makes me want to pray. It really does. So that is, the, that is the glove. Now, the hand in the glove, the application. It's Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Let me read the story to you really quickly. It's this, after that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of Jesus, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. There was... Um, This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. In other words, he's going to execute him. Herod's going to execute Peter. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer. See, Acts is about prayer. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That every season of spiritual awakening, every season of that of, of a spiritual breakout in the life of the church is simply preceded by prayer. It's preceded by sincere and authentic prayer. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two ch- chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him. I think this is funny. All this is going on. Peter's still sleeping between two soldiers, you know. So he kind of kicks him. He says, get up quickly. Chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that it was a vision because he's had visions before. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. Immediately the angel left him, and when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure the Lord has sent the angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12, and when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whom other, uh, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. There it is again. 
And I love this because where we find here is we find a lady by the name of Mary and a lady by the name of Rhoda praying because prayer is not a gender-specific event in our life. Understand that. And verse 13 says, And when he knocked at the door of the, at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. I love this because Jesus can bust him out of jail, but can't get him in the house. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. He's left standing at the door. Uh, I mean, like, you know, what do I do? Oh, you, you ask, seek and knock. You just keep knocking is what he does, I guess. Right. And, and they said to her that you're out of your mind, <laughs> but she kept insisting that it was so And they kept saying it was an angel. Do you know why they thought it was an angel? I think this is interesting. Because they had already thought that Peter had been executed by Herod. But they are still praying. Why? Because they know that death is not a foe to the prayer of God. Understand that. They know that because they had seen the death dead raised already. They know what has happened. So they continue to pray even though they might think that Peter is dead. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another city. Now, here's the glove in the hand. Two practical applications for us before we pray. The first is this. If you're going to talk about prayer, then we must talk about the sovereignty of God. If we're going to talk about prayer, then we have to talk about the sovereignty of God. You say, Mark, why is addressing the sovereignty of God so important about prayer and the heart of prayer? Because there's two things, real quick, and this is it. Until we embrace the sovereignty of God, we cannot truly believe that God would and could save the lost. Until we understand the sovereignty and embrace the sovereignty of God, we could and we would not understand that it is God's will to save the lost. The second is this, that until we embrace the sovereignty of God, we cannot be confident that the gospel, the kingdom of God, will win in the end. If we don't embrace the sovereignty of God, we are not, we lack the confidence that the kingdom of God will win in the end, so our prayers are in vain. Paul prays this prayer in Romans 10 and 1. How can we pray this same prayer that Paul prays in Romans 10 and 1 if we don't embrace the sovereignty of God? He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, is what he says. Yes. If we don't embrace the sovereignty of God, how can we even embrace what the book of Acts teaches us? How can we embrace the works in the book of Acts that they are continued for today within our lives in the context of our time that God is still, he is still committed to saving those that are lost? How can we embrace that if we don't embrace the sovereignty of God? How can we embrace the truth that God still heals us when our bodies are sick if we don't embrace the sovereignty of God? How can we embrace the fact that God still performs miracles with our lives today if we don't embrace the fact that God is sovereign? I think it's important that we do that because that's what the people in the book of Acts believe. They're praying for Peter in prison, even though they already think that possibly that Herod has executed him because they know that the gospel will continue however it is to be brought out by God because they believe that God is absolutely sovereign. That God in his sovereignty, that God has the right, the power, 
to save unbelieving and unrepentant, hardened, sinful people. God has the right to intervene in our rebellion of our life anytime He so chooses, just like He did with Adam and Eve in uh, Genesis chapter 3, where He shows up in the garden after sin, and He has the right to intervene in our rebellion and overcome the rebellion of our lives, that He sends the Holy Spirit to draw us to our loving relationship with Him. He has the right to exert such powerful grace within our lives that it overcomes our resistance to Him. John Piper says, and I quote this, he says this, Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comfort in the den. I wish I'd said something like that, but I didn't. But it's amazing. He says this, Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. So what about our prayer life? What about our prayer life? Mark, you could have preached on fellowship today. That would have been cool, you know. That would have been great. We'd have gone out and got a few more donuts before we went home and some more coffee. Yes, <clears throat> excuse me. But you, you could have preached on that. But you're going to talk about prayer. Fine, thank you. We appreciate that much. But you know what? There is a book that's out. It's by an author by the name of Eugene Peterson. The book is simply entitled this, Answering God, the Psalms as Tools for Prayer. It's a powerful book. And it mentions two types of prayer, which I think is a perfect application for this time in our life. It talks about that of evening prayers and morning prayers. And, and, and I think that if you have a background, if you have a background in that of Catholicism, or if you have a background in that of the Anglican Church or Episcopal Church, then you're well aware, are very familiar with the common book of prayers. You know exactly what that is. That's where this thought comes from, that of evening prayer and morning prayer, is exactly where it comes from. If you read any of the writings of Martin Luther, you'll find that he actually... He practices discipline in his life every day of his life and that of the morning prayer and the evening prayer of his life. And so I want to share this with you for a moment and encourage you to begin and enact this within your life. The, the evening prayer is taken from Psalm chapter 4, verse 8 specifically, but the whole Psalm chapter 4. And it says this, In peace I will both lie down and in sleep, in sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Evening prayer is marked by... That of praying about the things that we worry about. Why? Because you have all of that stuff on your mind throughout your entire day. You kind of cataloged all that. If you read the Psalms, what you find that in the evening, David would simply pray. He would commit all the things that he'd worry about in his life that evening to God in prayer. It's when you pray about the things that make you anxious. It's when you pray about the things that make you angry and uncertain and nervous and doubtful. You know... The greatest moments of fear and doubt and struggle and angst within my life is those moments when I lie down at night just before I go to sleep because my brain does not turn off. I don't know if you've ever had that problem or not. I hear some of you laughing. You're saying, yeah, exactly. You know, like, you know, where are you? Are you, are you in my bedroom at night when I go? No, no, I'm the one lying in my bed simply going through all this crazy stuff in my brain and asking God to sh please shut my brain off. And so what I do is this. 
what I do is this. I begin to pray. It is a discipline that I have practiced for years of my life that I always go through all those worries and all those fears and all those things that, that simply the enemy puts in my life lies many times. And I go through that and I begin to play, I begin to pray truth. Because what I have understood over the years is this. That the way that I combat lies of the enemy in my life is I attack them with the truth of God that's in my heart. Because there's always this battle between my mind and my heart at night before I go to bed. And so what I do, I have to simply pull the truth from my heart and I confront the lies of the enemy in my life. And what I realize is this, that where truth is proclaimed, lies cannot stand. And so tonight before you go to bed and you lay there and you worry about all the things in your life, you go through all those things, you begin to pray about them, then what I would say for you to do is to pray about them and then you begin to cover them in the truth of God. That you say things like this, that God is for me and God is not against me. That God is committed to completing the things that he has started within my life. That the creative order is that of for God's glory and for my joy. That he is my heavenly father, who I know is that of eternally, he is, he is infinitely powerful. And simultaneously, he is intensely personal in my life. And so I confront the lies of the enemy with those truths. And then somewhere in the middle of all of that prayer... What happens? I go to sleep. It's exactly right. Yes. And I do exactly what the psalmist David says here in 4 and 8. That in peace I will lie down and I will sleep. it's, It's a powerful application of prayer. That I pray against those lies with the truth. That's my evening prayer. Here's my morning prayer. It, it's from also it's Psalm 5. The morning prayer is based upon that. Oh, Lord, in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. I believe our morning prayer is that of active petitionary prayers, that we boldly pray against those evil things in the world and even in our lives and the lives of our family and our children and our friends and in our church, that we pray against the injustices of the world. We pray against the evil in high places. We pray against human trafficking. We pray against child abuse. I, I made a long list. We pray that there's a lot of children that need adoption. We pray for adoption, for fostering. We pray for the homelessness of our country and specifically of our community. We pray against addiction. We pray against religious persecution. It's must much like how they prayed in the book of Acts. That they knew that God was fulfilling His promises through them and they understood that God was sovereign and they prayed in the light of the sovereignty of God. That Herod was no formidable foe for a sovereign and powerful God. And so they pray the will of God. And you know the will of God to pray the will of God by simply reading the scriptures. You know the will of God. The second thing is this. I have one minute. I just looked at the clock. This is going to be great. Until you know that life is war. I took this from that quote of John Piper. Until you know life is war, you will never know what to pray for. It's the maintaining of our faith 
understand this. It's the act of obedience in our life. It's hearing the voice of God with all the clamor of the world around us that while we realize that this life is conflict, this life is war, we, we are simply in, in one place today and all of a sudden a moment takes place in our life that we never saw coming and we never planned for and all of a sudden our life is upside down and everything has changed. We're headed in a new direction or we don't know how to go because we're confused. And so we understand that life is war. It is a conflict and the target of the enemy in our life is to destroy our faith. It's to destroy our faith. Paul believed this so much about the, the, the Thessalonian church that he writes this in 1 Thessalonians 3 and 5. He said, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, when I could stand this no longer, he said, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the temper had, tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So I sent Timothy to see how your faith is doing because I know that the goal of the enemy is to destroy your faith. It's a, it's a conflict. It's a battle. And when we know that life is a battle, here's the point. We pray with persistence and fervency. We pray with passion. Sometimes we even pray almost like we're angry. Yeah, we're angry at sin and we're angry at the devil. We're angry at the things that he does in people's lives. Because we know that life is war. We know it's war. I think we've fooled ourselves in thinking that we live in peacetime because maybe as a nation, we, we do. But Ephesians 6 and 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I love this text. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. I'm excited because that's our summer series this this year, this summer, the armor of God. We're calling it the fight because life is war. Because for many of you in this room, life is different for you now. Things have turned out differently than what you thought they would. It's been a struggle. It's been a battle. Things have been taken from you by the enemy. There's been destruction in your life and the life of your family. And you realize it's war. And when you realize it's war, you pray like life is war. You say, but Mark, I don't know a lot of theology and I don't haven't memorized a lot of verses. I know John 3, 16 and Lord knows I know Genesis 3, 15 because you mentioned almost every single Sunday we're here. You know, you talk about that. So 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 I know about that of the first gospel. I know all those kinds of things, but I'm dealing with a lot of doubt in my life and a lot of fear. and My heart is broken and and, you know, I'll try to work on this morning thing and the evening thing of prayer, but it's going to be messy and inconsistent because there'll be times in, that I just forget or there'll be times I just don't want to. And can I tell you, you're in a great place. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 
12. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Lord, I don't have all the answers, you know. And I don't know how to pray these long, beautiful, extensive prayers. But all I know how to do is just call on you. God, all I know to do is to knock on your door at midnight saying, God, I need a sandwich. You know? God, I do know you enough to know that you're not that rude next door neighbor. But you are my intensely personal father who provides for me. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, Paul said, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of the gospel, for the the sake of Christ. Then I am confident with weaknesses, or I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Pray like life is war. Pray in the light of the sovereignty of God. In the evening before you lie down, pray over your worries. Confront the lies of the enemy with truth. In the morning, Pray those petitionary prayers over those things in your life and over the world and your family. But pray like life is war. If you if you knew that the lobby out front was full of Saul's of Tarshish this morning, you know, with his temple soldiers just waiting for me to say amen, then you'd, well, you're going to start saying, preach more, Mark, preach more. Come on, preach longer, right? For the first time ever. But if you knew that they were out there and the moment the door is open that you're going to be arrested and taken to jail and we say, okay, here's what we're going to do. At the end of the service, we're going to pray. Boy, your prayers are going to be very different, aren't they? Why? Because they're going to reflect what's out there. I think we should pray with a fervency that life is truly war. But we are the children of a sovereign God who has won. I love that. That this is not some cosmic duel between God and Satan and we're hoping that God wins the sword fight. No, he has won. He has won. And he will return and make all things right. So what about your prayer life this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Father, today we trust you with our lives and we trust you with the spiritual disciplines of our lives. We trust you, Father, with our families and with our relationships with our professions, our future, our goals, our dreams. 
but all that in the light of your sovereignty, that you are over and greater than all things. And so, Lord, every prayer that we pray, we pray flavored with your sovereignty, as they did through the book of Acts. That whatever evil king was sitting on the throne or whatever occupying force may be in town, that they still knew that you were sovereign greater than all things. And so they prayed with that flavor. That God, from this day forward, that we pray like life is war that we realize that the enemy is absolutely bent on the destruction of our faith, that he's bent on the destruction of our families, of our lives, of our mental and our physical and our emotional health. He has bent on the destruction of the gospel to keep it from being spread as the scriptures have promised. But today we know in our own lives the truth that greater is he that lives within us than he that lives in the world. And so we pray like life is war. Believing for chains to fall from those that are struggling with addiction. Believing today, Lord, for sight to to come to those that are spiritually blind to truth. For healing to come to those that are struggling. For broken hearts to be mended. relationships to be reconciled because we pray today like life is war trusting you God in your sovereignty and we give you thanks in your name amen would you stand with me please this morning to give you an opportunity to pray before we leave we have a couple of minutes left there are cards up front and we have prayer night this week on Wednesday night. This teaching tonight, today, was not planned just because we had prayer night. Actually, it, it, it just fell that way. But I encourage you to come up before you leave to share a request on one of these cards that are in the boxes and leave it here for us to pray over. I encourage you to take a moment to pray over it yourself as you are writing it up front. But I tell you, what, I, what I've asked God for more than anything this morning is for you to leave this place and tonight before you go to bed that you pray. And in the morning you get up and you pray. And that becomes a spiritual discipline in your life. And you pray with the flavor of And you pray like life is war. I truly believe that from that will come a great spiritual awakening. I believe that in his name. So while they're singing, come take a card if you like, fill out one, leave it up. Take a moment to pray this morning. And let's worship together.